0: Tom Carruthers hardly needs an introduction, but um, i give a brief one anyway. He is the Senior Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington. And in that capacity, he oversees all of the research programs at Carnegie. And he also directs the Democracy, Conflict, and Governance Program. And he carries out research and writing on on democracy-related issues. And I've had the pleasure to know um, Tom already for, for a few years. And we share an Oxford connection, and also um, a Carnegie connection. And I have to say, I've, uh, it's 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 um, hard to understand how you manage to to, it seems, effortlessly step between these different or move between these different worlds. You are uh, very prominent in the think tank world and the world of policy analysis and policy advice, but also in the academic discourse. So you've written some articles, which um, I think full-time academics will be very jealous that they haven't written, and in particular your piece on the grey zone of the transitions, I think nobody can really get around and has to, has to quote. So you've managed to somehow keep all these... Um, <coughs> Uh, balls in the air and I think you are also really aware um, in a sense that you can talk in depth about different regions um, and at the same time have the broader comparative global perspective um, uh, to offer as well. Uh, Tom has authored uh, many critically acclaimed books. Um, one um, of the very well-known ones is Confronting the Weakest Link Aiding Political Parties in New Democracies, but that might just be one of my favorites. The list is very long. But maybe more importantly today, um, he's also just come out with a new edited volume, uh, which he presented last week, also on Friday in Berlin. Maybe some of you heard him there. Um, It's an edited volume. He edited it uh, together with Andrew O'Donohue. Uh, The uh, book is called Democracies Divided, The Global Challenge of Political Polarization. And that is, I think, I'm sure this will somehow also inform some of the thoughts today about the darker lenses that we need to understand what is happening. So this book came out with Brookings Institution Press just in September um, this year. And he's on, it seems like, a world tour of, um, of this book. So how will we proceed? We will uh, first listen to uh, Tom's thoughts for about um, half an hour and then I invite our two guests who are then introduced up to the panel and they will react to what we've just heard and then of course we want to enter into a discussion with all of you as well. So thanks for being here and thanks for joining us Tom and the floor is yours.
1: Gwen, thank you very much. That's a too kind of an introduction. Uh, It's sort of only downhill after that, but uh, I'll do my best. Um, It's good to see everybody. Thanks for turning out. You know, 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Of course, it's a time to look back and think about uh, what happened in 1989 and what it meant and what it felt like. It's also a time to think about the present and where we are. But what I think is especially important and interesting is to think about what have we learned uh, in those 30 years about what has happened from where we were in 1989 in terms of our ideas and expectations about political change in the countries most affected by those events and where they've ended up. So that's really what I wanna talk about is some of our thinking at the time and what we got right or wrong in what actually happened. But I wanna do that by first putting 1989 a bit in a global perspective as I start. There's been a little bit of a tendency, particularly among people who follow uh, um, Central and Eastern Europe, to think of 1989 as really the, the centerpiece of a global wave of democracy. You know, Samuel Huntington talked about a third wave of democracy, which did exist. And people sometimes think of 1989 almost like if you have an arch, you have that capstone, the foundation stone in an arch. And that's not actually historically accurate. Um, If we understand the global spread of democracy a bit more widely, we see it differently in that what happened in the 1980s is that democracy really spread in in kind of three parts. The first part (coughs) was there's actually starting in the mid-1970s through the 1980s, a whole series of right-wing military dictatorships collapsed around the world. It started in southern Europe, Greece. Portugal and Spain, the only surviving uh, right-wing dictatorships in Europe at the time. And then it spread to Latin America, starting in the late 1970s and throughout the 1980s, Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, Bolivia, and quite a few other countries in Latin America. And also to Asia, South Korean military dictatorship fell, Uh, the Philippine military dictatorship fell. And Taiwan wasn't formally a military dictatorship, but it was a rightist uh, dictatorship. So the first wave of democratization was the collapse of the right. <clears throat> These right-wing governments were failing because they, they were different from the socialist or communist governments on the other side of the author- authoritarian scene. They were governments, military governments, a military government normally is an interrupting government. It's a government that comes into power and says we're interrupting civilian life because we have to usually because some kind of national emergency. So these were regimes that were not designed to be permanent. They were interruptive regimes. And by the late 70s, the 80s, their rationale for interrupting power was fading because they had beaten back the left-wing rebellions that they had mostly come in power to try to stop uh, or had done that a long time ago and had overstayed their welcome for far too long. And they were also having significant economic problems They mostly had corporatist kind of economic systems, statist kind of stale, crony capitalist economic systems that weren't doing very well in the debt crisis of the early 80s and so forth. So to some extent, the first part of the global democratic wave was the collapse of the right. And so by the time you got to 1989, you can understand that as the second part of this global democratic wave, which is the collapse of the left, um, in which you had uh, the... Regimes in Central and Eastern Europe, which, for reasons that are well known, collapsed as well. The combination of the fading power of the Soviet Union and also their own failures to deliver the goods for their people. And you also had the crisis in China, (coughs) Tiananmen the same year, which also represented a fundamental threat to another big regime of the left, an unsuccessful challenge to it. And so 1989 was actually the second part of a global democratic wave, not the first part and not the central part. And then the third part of that global democratic wave took place in the next decade, and it was an eclectic wave, a mixed wave. Its biggest place it unfolded was Sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, over 40 countries in Sub-Saharan Africa made transitions to multi-party rule in those years, and extremely important in that continent. And that was an eclectic wave in the sense that those are regimes both of the left and of the right, and also regimes that didn't really have any ideological coloring but they began to change as well, having lost legitimacy of both of those kinds of ideologies. And in Africa, there was a generational change after the founding generation of African leaders of the 1960s in decolonization. By the 80s and early 90s, those leaders were very old. They'd often driven their countries into a terrible state of governance, and they were fading, and new citizens' movements were challenging them. And that was the third part of the democratic wave. So 1989 is one part of a very important larger global story that took place from really the mid 70s through the end of the 1990s. And I think it's important when we think about it today that we make sure we understand it in that perspective. I'll come back at the end of my talk to see the problems that I'm gonna be talking about the political issues in Central and Eastern Europe and Southeastern Europe, to see them in global perspective and say to what extent are they similar or different to what's happening in other parts of the world. But let's zero in now on central and southeastern Europe and try to understand what were we thinking at the time and what happened. You know, the mood today is, I don't need to tell you, is not very optimistic. There's a you know, a gloomy sense about what has happened, a sense of disappointment. I think the gloom is a little bit overdone, but there is definitely some bad news. And it, it makes made me wonder, I was thinking, were we really so optimistic back then, or are we, are we changing our memories? So I actually went back in preparation for this talk and looked at some of the writings from the early 90s, journal articles, magazine articles, and so forth. We were too optimistic, definitely. I, I validated it. I can't give you a scientific measure of it. But I read some, I must admit, I read some of those articles from that time, and I cringed a little bit reading them, uh, with a certain naivete and a certain just... Uh, self-delusion, I would say. And I'm talking here a bit about the community of people that I'm, I would say, central to my professional life, which is the community of organizations, governmental, non-governmental, that try to support democracy in the world. Those include foreign ministries, aid agencies, political foundations, Stiftungen, um, non-governmental organizations of many types, private foundations. There's that community of organizations that supports democracy in the world. And it was this community that was very optimistic and and viewed Central and Eastern and Southeastern Europe as a a zone that was really ready for very positive transitions. So I want to go through and I'm just going to identify for you here a series of assumptions. When I went back and looked and thought what was our mindset at the time? What were we expecting? I saw, I, I happened to come up with nine Uh, Recently, our communications person told me there's something in human psychology, it's better to have an odd number than an even number of points when you make a presentation. So she told me to make sure I always have an odd number, not an even number. Um, So I found nine assumptions that I remember. Actually, I remember probably holding some of them myself uh, and of which no longer really seem to be true. So let's go through them one by one. And uh, I don't mean to kind of heap abuse on ourselves and say we were so misguided and stupid. They were reasonable assumptions, and there are good reasons why we held them, but it's worth going back and thinking about what they were. The first was an extremely basic assumption, which was we thought the introduction of elections into these countries that had not been having genuine multi-party elections would do two crucial things. First, having regular legitimate elections would engage citizens, and would make them feel part of political life. They would attach themselves to <coughs> political groupings. They would feel that they have a say in government and citizens would become positively engaged. And secondly, equally crucial, we thought these elect- elections would clean up bad government because if bad government tried to exercise power at the next election, they'd pay a price and we get somebody better. It's what we'd come to expect from elections in our own countries. So, We really thought of elections as like a primary motor of positive change, and unfortunately that hasn't happened. On both those fronts, fundamental problems have occurred. First, uh, the citizens of the countries that I'm talking about um, did participate in elections, but they did neither attach themselves very much to many of the political parties they started with a very high degree of cynicism about political parties, and they never really changed in their citizen, so their sort of citizen antagonism towards organized political elites. And they didn't feel that participating in elections, many of them didn't feel that really gave them that much say in governance. And they, by the end of 20, 25, 30 years, many of them felt quite alienated despite these regular elections. And they did not clean up bad governance. You had alternation of power in most countries between one side and the other, yet bad governance on both sides. Think of Romania, for example, with all the problems with systemic corruption. Yet they've had free and fair elections over and over again. Citizens have chosen this side, they've chosen that side, they've chosen this side, they've chosen that side. What have they gotten? Systemic corruption, in their view. And they're, they're frustrated about it. And so elections did not prove to be a motor of cleaning up bad governance. So that was the first uh, overly optimistic assumption about elections. The second was more economic, and it was that we thought market economics, the introduction of market economics into formerly socialist countries, would not just produce growth, which it has in most cases, actually it's been quite a bit of growth, would not just produce growth, but it, it would produce a kind of basic economic opportunity and fairness in the system because we thought the privatization and the open up of markets would clean out the bad practices, the old corruption and the things that this would be like the light of, of competition would clean up uh, economic systems. And again and again we said if they've just privatize those old national industries and national services, they'll be brought into a competitive framework and they'll be made more productive and less corrupt. But instead, as we know, the inter- it turned out <clears throat> what we missed w- was the introduction of market economics into states with very weak rule of law was a very deadly combination because you had ferocious economic competition uh, together with very re- weak rule of law. So it was like you put the, the tigers of capitalism in a room, but there were no rules. <clears throat> and uh, the tigers ate up the common people. And these days, those of you who are either from Central and Eastern Europe or go there, if you're walking down the street in Budapest and you see a really fancy house being built, and there are various, and you're, talking, you're with a Hungarian, that Hungarian, you say, I Who's, wonder whose house that is. They will immediately say, somebody dirty. Nobody clean has a house like that. Only the dirty people have houses like that. That's terrible. <clears throat> what that means is the basic economic system is rewarding the bad and punishing the good. And that's the perception of many people of what market economics ended up with. And that's, that's unfortunate. <clears throat> Third, we thought post-communist politics would center would settle fairly quickly into center-left, center-right patterns that resembled those of Western Europe. Western Europe was still in the mode of a great deal of consensual politics between a moderate center-left, a moderate center-right, back and forth. And we thought Central and Eastern Europe, Southeastern Europe would mimic that and have fairly similar political divisions And they did form center-left and center-right parties, and there was a fair amount of alternation. But on the center-left, we got sort of two things wrong in our thinking about the center-left in these countries. The first was that we didn't realize how hard it would be for some new center-left groupings to pull away from the old patterns of socialism. And they could call themselves reform socialists or post-socialists, but there were linkages and there were problems. If you look at the center-left in Romania, for example, it has had an ambiguous relationship to some of the old power structures, particularly in the secret services and other things that represent an incomplete transition away from that. Even the Hungarian socialists, who are better in in that sense, cleaner, still have had some ambiguous ties, both intellectually and practically, to old patterns that were problematic. And secondly, the center-left Um, wanted to be like the central left in Western Europe, which was to give well-funded welfare states to their citizens. And the citizens loved that idea. Let's let's just move right to the German uh, social welfare state. That would be great. They couldn't afford it. There wasn't enough money. They overpromised. And when you look at the budget patterns when the central left governed, then even the center right as well, they created kind of incipient welfare states that couldn't be... Uh, afforded by those countries. And so in Hungary in the early 2000s, push came to shove. They had promised a lot of benefit to citizens, they went deeply into debt, and the basis of a financial crisis was created. And so (coughs) Central Europeans wanted a Western European welfare state but their countries weren't rich enough to afford it yet. And that was a serious problem. And you see that still haunting the center-left. The center-right we thought of as the home. We, the outsiders, to some extent, thought of as the home of the pro-democrats. These are the people like the young Viktor Orban or Lech Walesa in Poland. These were the people who were agitating for democracy. And we underestimated the inclination of the center right to go further right <clears throat> for various reasons because of reasons of national identity and nationalism and other things we're familiar with now. I don't know how many articles there have been about Hungary where they always start and say, gee, this is really puzzling. Viktor <coughs> Orban in 1989 was one of the heroic young Democrats. What happened to him? Well, that story has been played out in many people actually in the center-right in Central Europe and Southeastern Europe. So that's the third assumption. We thought we'd have sort of, quote, normal central-left, center-right politics. That's not what ended up. We got much more complex and somewhat uh, troublesome politics in most of the countries. Fourth, this was really a powerful assumption, is we thought civil society, which had played such a heroic and inspiring role, Vaclav Havel and solidarity and the environmental movement in Bulgaria in the 80s and various forms of civil society that were so crucial in the fall of of socialism in Central Europe, we thought civil society would continue to play a powerful kind of checking role on power and a positive role. This is where I cringe the most, looking back at articles. Article in 1993 eight, 19, yeah, 93 in the Journal of Democracy saying, civil society is so advanced in Central Europe, they'll probably create a kind of civic democracy even better than Western Europe. You read those now and think, wow, we had really drunk the Kool-Aid of civil society, and uh, we really believed in it. Now, I, I do believe in civil society. It's, it is a good thing, but we were vastly overestimating the power of civil society to go from what it had been in the 80s to be insurgents to play a steady, sustained role as checking power and making power work well. We didn't understand how little financing there would be for that kind of civil society. We gave some aid for it for the first five or ten years and basically walked away, and a lot of it collapsed. And uh, We didn't see how weak their societal roots were, many of these organizations, and how thinly sort of spread they were in their societies and that came back to haunt them when they started to be attacked from the right. A fifth assumption was about media. Uh, This was a big assumption. People don't talk about it so much anymore but there was the belief that if you privatized media and moved quickly away from the state-centric media of of the socialist days you would get competition, diversity of viewpoints, citizen engagement. What you got was oligarchy media. Uh, We went very quickly from sort of state television to business-controlled television and radio and other things. And the media landscape turned bad very quickly. And uh, this was misunderstood because it was part of not seeing that, when, again, when you create something like a media system in a country with very weak rule of law and very opaque forms of holding financing and spending financing – you created an environment where the media was highly distorted by the business community and by links between business community and power. So the media sector turned out very differently than people had hoped. Uh, the sixth assumption, generally this sounds a bit political science-y, so I'll pass over it briefly, was we, the triumph of 1989 was to political scientists a triumph of, quote, agency over structure. What that that means is, you know, political scientists saw it as a triumph of the individual will, the heroic individual, the insurgent group, over the structures of power and over, you know, how Central Europe was sort of posed structurally. And so it was seen as, you know, humans can do anything. They can make democracy anywhere. Uh, It was the spirit of the time. Mongolia seemed to be coming democratic, you know, everybody. And you just said the, the historical moment is now agency, not structure. And what happened in the last 30 years is structure came back to gradually eat up agency. Structures being of old power structures that were never really cleaned up in police, security services, opaque economic structures, and a lot of mental power structures as well and linkages among people and so forth. Just a couple more assumptions. Um, Some of them are about the international context. This of course was a huge one. We assumed that the European Union would play a powerful and effective role in helping uh, introduce democracy to the region and ensure its continuation. This was an enormous assumption. Uh, It had two parts. First was uh, the attractive model of the EU would be a gateway and countries would have to conform to it in order to get into the EU. Then once they got into the EU, they would be handed this enormous acquis package and asked to conform all their institutions to EU practices and they would gradually systematize democracy within the countries. The first half of that assumption was sort of true. People did really want to get into the club and they did. it did help, particularly in Romania and Bulgaria, that helped the political parties sometimes avoid worse choices because they really did want to get in. But once they got in, it turned out, once you got through the doorway into the EU, those mechanisms of transforming institutions and monitoring them were extremely weak because they were designed for a fairly, you know, well-established set of democracies in Western Europe that were used to being fairly polite to each other, very consensus-oriented, and then suddenly you had some members of the club that didn't fit it very well, and they said, "Gee, you should improve your rule of law a little bit. You shouldn't be so corrupt." Or that, and they didn't really have the mechanisms either for monitoring in a really serious way, or for the political will and the consensus to really enforce that. And uh, as we know, that proved to be a very deep and serious problem, and we're, you know, struggling with it every day in terms of what role should the EU play with respect to Hungary, or what role should the EU play with respect to Poland. And this problem has not been solved. But this was a a vast overestimation of a process that would occur that didn't occur. An eighth assumption was we assumed that the Western democratic and economic models, both European, North American, and others, they were very attractive in the 1980s relative to the Soviet model. We assumed they would continue to be very healthy models. And we just, we never really occurred to us, you know, people in 1989 did not imagine Donald Trump, for example, or other things. And we just assumed these models were, you know, they had kind of the winners of history and they would continue to be attractive. And so we kept holding them out to people and saying, we're pretty good at this, you should do it like we do. Um, And then when we began to stumble, the first big stumble, there were various, probably the biggest was the financial crisis of 2008, looked like to some people that part of Central and Eastern Europe. Southeastern Europe is like you know the final crisis of capitalism. They said, we thought you were the model, look at you. Um, and you know political entrepreneurs took advantage of that reality and said the West is failing. We need to get on a different ship and sail in a different direction because the West is falling apart. And then when Western political systems began to have more illiberal forces and populist forces, uh, the model wasn't so attractive anymore. And in fact, it was an infectious model that was was spreading some bad ideas to other people. So we just didn't imagine where we we ourselves would be in 30 years. It wasn't just that we didn't imagine correctly where others would be. We didn't see our own fate, in a sense, coming. And then the final assumption was we assumed that Russia would be not a powerful actor in the region, especially. And certainly not one that would attract people to a different model. We thought Russia would still be relevant, but we didn't expect either that it would end up as self confident and assertive as it has, or how much it has formed a coherent idea of an alternative uh, sort of socio cultural ideology that it's putting forward. And so we really didn't think very much about what the role of Russia in the region would be, and that both irritated Russians who felt that you know they had a historically important role in this region and helped alienate them in various ways. But we didn't prepare for a world in which Russia now has very considerable influence in the media sector, the business sector, and the political sector in many of these countries, and so we were, again, caught by surprise. So. It's a pretty considerable set of assumptions that we got wrong, actually. As I said, not everything bad happened. The economic systems did grow a lot. These countries are much freer than they used to be. Many people's lives have improved. So it isn't a wasteland, but it isn't what we expected in many ways. You know, you can ask kind of interesting just sort of intellectual question. You can say, suppose, you know, put you in the time machine and send you back 30 years and go through these with people and say, watch out. Here's nine assumptions that seem to be on your mind. What would a people have done differently if they had known these things? I mean, uh, I don't have that much time, so I would just say here's a couple of things people might have done differently. I think even if we had known all this, it's not clear to me that we could have made that much difference, but we might have done a few things better. The first and foremost is we should have thought about marketization differently. We should have been very careful about the deeper legal context of marketization. Doesn't mean we necessarily avoided market capitalism, but we would have had to have been much less naive about how quickly political entrepreneurs would use the new market system to produce state capture. We would have had to think much more about greater transparency early on, maybe going slower in certain ways on certain kinds of issues. There's a whole, you can rethink in a a lot of ways how market transitions might have been done differently. Secondly, with civil society, we probably should have pushed right from the beginning on building constituencies. We should have thought a lot more about grounding these organizations in throughout the societies, not just among intellectuals and young people in the capitals, but really reaching out and trying to bridge social divides right from the beginning. Uh, And a lot could have been done to push people, uh, given that there was a lot of Western funding initially to say you really need to prepare for uh, a world in which uh, you're gonna be challenged and in which you're not gonna have so much financing over time, so you need to build these local ties. On media ownership, we could have thought a lot more about before we privatized the media and just threw it out for bid and say, okay, great, we're gonna sell all the television stations in the next year and we're gonna help you know, finance that and help that happen. We should have thought much more about transparency and ownership in the media structure, the legal control, and gone much more carefully in that way and thought about different kinds of models and of course fourth the european union should have thought much more seriously about what is it going to mean when these organizations walk in the door of the european union how are we we really need to study them much more carefully to understand how are they similar or different and really what has been our experience with greece for example how successful have we been about improving rule of law in greece and given that What have we learned from that about what we're going to do with societies that enter, that have very different traditions and patterns? So the European Union could have been much better prepared and so forth. So we could have done some things differently. Would it have made a fundamental difference? I don't know. I'm not really sure. Uh, I mean, it's the big question for the region in my mind. Just the bigger question, which is not the subject of this talk, is, is... is respect to Russia, is could the West have approached Russia differently in the early 1990s that would have not led to what we have today, which is Russia and the West uh, as enemies of each other, which unfortunately is how Russia at least sees it. That's another big question and subject of a whole other discussion. So let me take a few more minutes and go back to the global perspective. As we... uh, as we look at the trials of democracy in the Visegrad countries in Southeastern Europe, and I think one or more of the commentators will talk a bit about the former Soviet states, which is important to bring into the, into the perspective. When we think about the problems of democracy in these places, are they, you know, there's talk these days about a general democratic recession in the world, and there's a lot of doom and gloom about democracy globally. Um, are the problems in Central and Southeastern Europe similar or different from the problems that democracy is facing in other parts of the world that are causing people to talk about a global democratic recession. Well, let me just check in on a couple of different regions. And I would say in general, they're, they're somewhat different actually. What you have in um, Latin America is something different going on, which is you have a pendulum in Latin America between a sort of uh, a set of market transitions that have produced a lot of inequality and a lot of social exclusion, and you have a populist left reaction, not a populist right reaction, you have Hugo Chavez and the Bolivian Morales who just resigned yesterday, President and Ecuador. You have a number of populist left left movements that fight with the kind of centrist, center-right market uh, economic view, and Latin America is stuck in a pendulum between these two points of view, and it's having a very hard time finding it. A real center between these, and it's a very destructive alternation. That's quite different. Central and Eastern Europe does not have populist leftist projects. It has populist projects that are actually kind of strange combinations of rightist and leftist impulses. But it does not have a Ua Chavez. It does not have a, you know, a leader of the populist left like in Latin America. The Arab world, <clears throat> the Arab world is in a very bad way in democratic terms because it's fundamentally stuck. Arab autocracies have been ruling that part of the world for a very long time. They had a shock to their system in 2011 when many Arabs rose up and said, we don't want these. They managed to put those people back in the box through repression. And some of those people are trying again now. We have the Arab Spring the second going on right now, although it's weaker and more fragmented. But the Arab world is fundamentally stuck in a kind of unproductive autocracy that we could talk about. So that's also different. Sub-Saharan Africa is a very mixed picture. um, It doesn't really have a single trend, and so it's hard to characterize and compare, and the same is true with Asia. You have a country like India, which we had big hopes for democratically. Indian democracy was quite inspiring for many decades, but it's experiencing the rise of Hindu nationalism, which turns out to be an illiberal movement in various ways, a kind of religious nationalism that excludes people. It's something that it's, it might have some echoes with some of the right uh, forces in Central Europe. And you saw that in a kind of odd way when Prime Minister Modi recently wanted to have some Europeans visit Kashmir. So he invited members of far-right parties in Central Europe to come to India to go to Kashmir because he thought they don't like Muslims <coughs> there, I don't like Muslims, we should get along. So there is a kind of odd alliance a little bit that was created there. But what India is going through, which is a historic reconsideration of what is India as a country, is it a pluralist, multicultural India, or is it a Hindu nationalist India, is is different in many ways, I would say, than what Central and Eastern Europe is going through. So there are some differences. Populism is different in other parts of the world. And here's something that's interesting. Civil society is quite weak in many Central and Southeastern European countries. It's very strong in other places. Latin America has a lot of problems, but it has quite active civil society. Citizens are very engaged and organized. Look, you see it in all these protest movements, Chile and Ecuador and Peru and elsewhere. Citizens are really organized and, and out there. And civil society in Africa is Really strong. I'm always struck when I go to African countries how many of the most talented people in African countries are working. Women's movements extremely strong in Africa. For example, the average representation of women in national legislatures is higher in Africa than it is in the United States. I mean, women in Africa are fighting for their rights very effectively. So there's surprising things out there in the world that are quite different uh, than other places. And so just as Central and Eastern Europe in 1989 was just one part of a rather complex and eclectic global way for democracy. The problems that are very much on our mind kind of here in Europe, and particularly looking at 1989 and the former communist countries, are again part of a global democratic, in this case, recession, but they're their own part with their own specific problems and histories and trajectory. So just as we probably overestimated a bit Uh, the centrality of 1989 in the larger picture of that time. We have to be careful not to overestimate our gloom. Uh, You know, there is a bit of gloom in this part of the world about the state of democracy. And we have to be careful not to project it out because again, it's just one part of a much more complicated global picture that has some good news and bad news mixed in with it. So that's the basic message to you is understand the global perspective from 89 understand it today, and then think hard about what we got wrong, what we've learned from that experience. And so as we look at transitions today and think about how we can help, let's not make the same mistakes. Again, thanks for your attention. Hope it was useful to you and look forward to the discussion.